Company, you can be seated. We'd like to welcome you to FBC Tifton, and it's good to see uh, those of y'all that regularly worship with us this morning, and we hope that we have some visitors in our presence this morning as well. But we just want you to know we don't ever take for granted that you're here on Sunday morning. That's a special thing, but most importantly, uh, Jesus cares that you're here. Um, but we're excited to see what God's going to do this morning. We'd like to ask everyone to do one thing for us. If you would, there's a registration card in your bulletin. If you would, everyone, please tear that off and register your attendance. And in a moment, the offering plate is going to be passed by. And if you would, just toss that in there, and that will help us know who all is here today. And so we're excited to see what God's going to do. So we invite you all to stand up and greet one another. Thank you.
May we pray? <coughs> God, thank you for this day. And thank you for letting us come together to worship you. Father, just receive this offering and bless it and guide us so that this offering uh, may be used most to please you and to reach those um, who do not know you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Um, thank you, guys. We are taking books of the Bible and finding messages in each book, and we're in 2 Corinthians this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21 is the passage of Scripture. And in this passage, there's about half a dozen, maybe a dozen sermons in every verse. Um, but I have chosen, the, the title this morning is called The Love of Christ, and it comes primarily from verse 14, which we'll get to in a minute. The love of Christ. And what it does to Paul to drive him to do all the, the things that he does. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21 says this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to be proud of us, so that you may be able to answer those who pride themselves on a man's position and not on his heart. For if we are beside ourselves or crazy, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Look at this. For the love of Christ controls us or constrains us or drives us because we are convinced that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might live no longer for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised from now on therefore we regard no one from a human point of view even though we once regarded christ from a human point of view we regard him thus no longer here's a good one therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation or creature the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Here's another verse. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now here's the RA verse. So we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you want to ponder that for a few minutes or a few hours or a few lifetimes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this passage of Scripture, Paul gives a lot of reasons for doing what he does. And they're good reasons. And someday I, you know, I worry about us in the church. Are we properly motivated? Do we really understand what Jesus has done for us on the cross? Do we really understand it? And if so, why don't we respond appropriately? Why do we act the way we do? Why doesn't it change us, make us new creatures from the inside out? Let's bow together. God, as we come together today to worship you, we acknowledge that we, we need you, that we love you, even though sometimes our love is shallow, sometimes our love is dependent upon what you have done for us recently. <laughs> Help us to love because you first loved us and you showed that love by sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins while we were still sinners, so undeserving. 
And if we can ever plumb the depths of that love, it'll change everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Kimberley, South Africa, there is a hole. There is a big hole. As a matter of fact, it's the largest man-made hole in the entire world. It is hundreds of feet deep. It is at least one mile in circumference. And where the hole is now, there used to be a hill. So you're probably sitting there wondering, why is there a hole there? Why Why do people dig a hole? I'm glad you asked that question. Because years ago, two boys were playing on that hill and they were throwing rocks at each other. And and a man passing by noticed that one of the rocks glistened a little bit. And so he took the rock and he washed it off. And guess what he discovered? A diamond. The diamond mines of South Africa. And so for every, every year since then, hundreds, thousands of people have come to this area and, and whatever ramshackle makeshift tools they could find, they have dug a deep, deep, deep hole. And it just keeps getting deeper. Now there's like green, slimy water in the bottom of the hole, but it doesn't deter them. It doesn't stop them from doing what they're doing because they're properly motivated by the desire for diamonds. You know, in the church... We do a lot of things. We talk about methods and materials and money and manpower and and all those things, but why do we do what we do? What drives us? What motivates us? What propels us forward to do the things that we do? For Paul, there was one thing that drove him, one passion above everything else that was the most important thing in the world to him. And he says what it is in verse 14. The love of Christ controls us, Paul says. It controls us. Some translations say it constrains us. It drives us. It motivates us. And once Paul began to get his arms around the idea of what God's love did for him, it changed everything. It changed everything about Paul. Think about that. Saul on the road to Damascus to persecute the church, to persecute Christians. God revealed himself to to Saul on that road. His name changed. His life's purpose changed. His mission changed. His energy changed. And and everything that he had used before Christ to, to tear apart the church, that was even more multiplied to serve Christ to edify the body, to build up the church. All that negative energy was transformed into power, into into positive power and purpose to serve and follow and love Christ. Paul said, the love of Christ controls me. Now, when you read something like the love of Christ, you can translate that one of two ways. in In the Greek, it's called either a subjective genitive or an objective genitive. And that means either Christ is the subject or the object. Either it's the love that Christ as a subject has for us, or it's the love that we have for Christ as the object. It's pretty clear in this verse that Christ is the subject. It's not the love that we have for Christ that changes Paul, 
but it's the love that, that God has for us. And when you begin to understand how much God loves you, what he has done for you to prove that love, once you begin to grasp that, Paul said it is a controlling, constraining, powerful change that transforms you in your life. As a matter of fact, he says, uh, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. It changes everything. It changes who you are. It changes how you think. It changes what you say. It changes what you do. Because the love of Christ is a controlling power that changes everything. The word control in the Greek, I looked this up, it means to hem in, to hold on both sides, to back into a corner. It also means, this is a kind of an interesting translation, it means to press the ears together. Like you're holding your ears, like someone is trying to distract you. But you're focused on one goal. It's like a horse that has blinders on. You have one goal and one purpose and nothing can distract you. There's no options available. There is one thing that you're headed for, and that is the controlling factor, Paul says, in his life. What is that factor? It's the love of God that he has for us. In Paul's day, prisoners were often guarded by soldiers flanking them on either side. And I wonder if Paul had that in mind when he said, the love of Christ flanks me. It, it removes all the obstacles away, all the distractions away. It takes away all of our options. The love of Christ flanks me on both sides and gives me one path to follow and only one. And Paul says, that's going to be my driving, determining purpose from this point forward. Paul understood what God's love for us made possible. He understood that his love took Jesus to the cross. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God was the first to show us love. While we were still sinners, when we were undeserving, God took the initiative and he breached the gap that our sin had created. God reached down to us through Jesus Christ when we were still sinners. Sometimes I think about sin, kind of like we're like volcanoes. And sin is like the lava kind of seething within us, kind of working its, its, its evil, evil task. And it'll come out either one of two ways. Either we will try to bottle it up and it will explode like an eruption, or we will try to hold it down and it will kind of seep out in insidious, subtle ways through cracks on the facade, through chinks in the armor. So sin is going to work its way out. But God, I mean, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, while that sin was seeping or exploding or, or whatever we were doing, God sent Jesus to the cross to die. Here at the end of the chapter, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God Sometimes when I'm like at the end of the month paying bills and stuff, I kind of think about God's ledger. And I think about God sitting on like a banker's bench and he has his glasses down about halfway on his nose and he's looking at the ledger 
and he has this big quill pen, and he sees Wayne Rowe in his ledger, and he sees all the sins that Wayne Rowe has, has done, has thought about, will ever think about. Um, and God takes all that sin and all that ugliness, and he transfers it to the account of Jesus Christ. And not only does he do that, but he takes all the righteousness and all the holiness of his perfect son, Jesus Christ, and transfers that to the account of Wayne Rowe. So the righteousness of God has been given to me, and all my sin has been transferred to Jesus on the cross. His righteousness was reckoned to me. My sin was reckoned to him. And Paul never recovered from discovering that secret, that truth, that reality. That who he was, as evil a man as he was, a persecutor of the church, that God loved him and transferred that sin to Jesus and transferred the the righteousness of Jesus to him. And once Paul began to understand that with his, his brilliant mind, he said that controlled him, that drove him, that hemmed him in and flanked him on every side so that there was only one purpose in his life from that point forward, and that was to love God and to serve him. <clears throat> and then Paul gives three ways in this passage how the love of Christ hemmed Paul in. He says, first of all, because... In verse 14, the love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. We are convinced. Um, There's a difference between conviction and feeling, between conviction and sentiment. One of the problems, I think, of our society is that we have allowed sentiment to substitute for solid conviction. We have allowed feelings and emotions to take the place of conviction so that people don't really know what they believe anymore. And and if they do believe in something, they aren't really strong enough in that conviction of that belief to act on it, to do anything about it. And so we just have a lot of sentiments and, and, you know, we're kind and we think good thoughts and we send out good love to people, but we don't really have strong enough convictions to really do anything or act on our beliefs. Why? Because sentiment is less costly, it's less challenging than genuine conviction. Because if you're convicted about something, you'll act, you'll do something. There's, there's a movie that came out a few months ago called The Big Miracle. You know that movie, it has Drew Barrymore in it. It's about the three whales that were trapped under a polar ice cap uh, in Alaska, and, and uh, all, the, all the resources and all the money and all the, the man hours and the energy, I think what they did, what, I saw the trailer of the movie, they drilled some holes in the ice so the whales could breathe, and it's about three whales, and uh, drilled holes, and eventually through, that, through the holes in the ice, you know, the whales could breathe, and they eventually got them out from under the ice cap, and, and uh, they were able to swim away happily and live happily ever after, I guess. And, you know, that's a, great, that's a great movie, and I, don't get me wrong, I, I don't dislike whales. I love whales. Um, but, you know, I, I couldn't help but think they're human beings starving in Africa. 
You know, there, there are people suffering, Christians persecuted in the Middle East, in the Far East. There, there are a lot of bad things happening. There are martyrs, Christian martyrs, being put to death every day. But we invest our time and energy on whales. That's what gets the news. That's, that's what the media follows. Because if we really get convicted about hunger and poverty and homelessness and, and um, racism, if we really get convicted about those, those issues, we do something. And so we are, we're sentimental about those issues, but we get convicted about poor little whales under the ice. Paul said he died for all in verse 15, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There Paul is already beginning to say that he's dead. The old Saul is dead. Maybe when we become Christians, we need to get new names. Maybe we need to change our names uh, or a few, a few letters in our name to indicate the, the radical transformation like from Saul to Paul that takes place when Jesus comes into our life and we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for us and was raised from the dead. He has been crucified with Christ and Paul says, the amount of living that he does from this point on is directly proportional to the extent that he allows Jesus to live in him. Did you hear me? The amount of living that Paul does is directly related, directly proportional to the extent that he allows Jesus to live through him. If you're, if you're a Christian but Jesus is not living through you, then, then you're still dead. If Jesus is living through you, what extent you give him lordship, a power, authority over your life, that's the extent that you're living. And if you aren't doing that, you may be breathing, you may be eating, you may be sleeping, but you're not really living. You're existing. You're taking up space. Paul said, I began to live when Christ came in me and lived through me. And when that happens... It changes everything. And Paul is thoroughly and fully convinced and convicted of that truth. And when he's convicted of it, he does something. And that's what we need to do. Secondly, this is, what, this is another thing that hymns him in. From now on, verse 16, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view. In other words, Whereas, you know, I once saw Jesus as, as a man saw him. Now I don't see him that way any longer. I see him from a different point of view. In other words, Paul can no longer look at people from a human point of view. He has to look at people the way God looks at people. He has to love people with the way Jesus loves people. He has to serve people the way Jesus served people. You can't look at people from a human point of view any longer. You see them the way Jesus sees them. And since Jesus loved everybody enough to die for everybody, whom does that mean Paul loves? Everybody. Jesus loved everybody enough to die for them. And Paul said that change, that gives me a new, new pair of glasses. That gives me a new perspective. That gives me a new focus. I can't regard people the way I did before I became a Christian. 
Because when Jesus came in me, he gave me his eyes. He gave me a new perspective. He gave me his heart. So I love them and I see them the way God does. So, you know, sometimes we hear people in the church say stuff like, well, I don't like that person very much. Or or that person was mean to me. Or, Or that person takes all the credit. Or why does, you know, she didn't treat me right. So I don't like her anymore. All that is looking at people from a human point of view. We have to rise above that and look at people from a new perspective, from the perspective that that God gives us when Jesus comes into our lives. We see them the way Jesus sees them, and that gives us a radical change in perspective. The love of Christ, Paul says, removes all those options of seeing people the way the world sees them. We can't see people the way the world sees them. We see people the way God sees them. And there are a lot of Christian songs right now I really like about, God, help me to see people the way you do. Help me to see the world the way you do. Help me to love people the way you do. That's that's exactly what I'm talking about here, the change in perspective, the radical transformation that takes place in our perspective when Jesus takes over our lives. I'm no longer free to look at people the way I once did. I'm no longer free to stereotype people the way I once did. I must see them and love them and treat them the way Jesus does. Because he has come into my life and taken it over. And third and finally, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's the third reason Paul is controlled by God. He understands We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Therefore, we beseech you on behalf of Christ, be ye reconciled to God. What our RAs could tell us what an ambassador is. You know, we know who some ambassadors are that serve in foreign countries. An ambassador is someone who lives in a country other than their home. And they go to that country, why? To represent their home and to present the king's message from their home to that foreign country. Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ. What does that mean? That means this isn't our home anymore. This is just where we live. We're living in a foreign country here on earth when you become a Christian because your citizenship has been transferred to heaven. God has become your king And the message that you are to propagate is only the message that he has given you to share. If you are an ambassador for Christ, that's what an ambassador does. And the message that he has given us to share is that that Jesus is his son, that he died on the cross to save us from our sins, that he was raised again, and one day he's coming again in glory. And the only reason God has delayed Jesus coming is because of his incredible patience. Because it's not his will that anyone should perish. But he has given us additional time here on earth to tell the gospel, to share it with other people so that as many people as possible can be gathered into the, into the, the flock of God's beloved uh, sons and daughters. He has given us time to share the gospel. But he is the king, and one day the king is coming. And we need to prepare the way like John the Baptist and get people ready 
and tell it as often as possible. When we understand fully, I think, God's love for us, we run out of options because we become convicted. It brings a new perspective. We no longer regard man from a human point of view. We regard him from from God's eyes, from Christ's love. And thirdly, we become his ambassadors. We're here on earth, representing him where our home is and delivering the message that an ambassador in another country is supposed to deliver, the message from the king of our home that says, whosoever will may come. Shall we bow together? God, when I read what an understanding of the gospel did to Paul, how it changed his life's purpose. And not only did it change it, but it it was 180 degree. It wasn't a gradual change. It wasn't an incremental change. It was a radical 180 degree change from everything he had studied and lived and taught and done was radically transformed to a whole new purpose for living. And that understanding drove him the rest of his life so that he he was convicted. He had no other options. He was controlled and constrained by it. And once he had that conviction, once he was convinced fully, then it changed his perspective and made him, him an ambassador for you. God, I guess we're a little afraid to really think about what your love for us means because it's costly. It's radical. It'll change everything about how we live, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we look at others, how we talk, what we value. It'll change all of that. And so we're a little frightened by the prospect of the transformation that will be required. So we ask this morning that you'll give us just another glimpse of another facet of the great love you have for us. And in response, help us let go of ourselves and open ourselves up to more of you. Fill us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.